Hello and welcome to Oxford Policy Pod, based out of the University of Oxford's Wolbotnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruthi Palniapin, and this week we're going through some of the key facts and underlying issues you need to know about the coup in Myanmar. We've seen stories in the news about ongoing protests across the country, but what's really happening and why? To get you up to speed, the coup began on February 1st, the day before the parliament of Myanmar was due to swear in members elected during the November 2020 election. In these elections, the National League for Democracy, headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, won a landslide 396 out of the 476 seats in parliament. The military's proxy party, the Union Solidarity and Development Party, won only 33 seats. Though it's important to note the 2008 constitution reserves 25% of overall parliamentary seats for the military, giving them veto power over any constitutional change. On the morning of February 1st, Myanmar's military, the Thamadao, imprisoned prominent figures, including state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi and President Yu Win Myin, and imposed a year-long state of emergency with power vested in military chief, senior general Min Aung Lang. The justification for the coup, the military argues, is that the November elections were fraudulent, but the election commission has rejected these claims. In the past month, Myanmar has seen their largest civil disobedience movement in decades. Across the country, rural and urban communities are taking to the streets to demand that the military respect their votes in the election and release the detained leaders. The military, though, is responding to these protests with social media blackouts, curfews, and increased violence killing 18 people on February 28th alone. With the protests only growing more widespread, what are these demonstrators demanding and why? To go deeper into the history and background of the coup, we have a great lineup of guests joining us today. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. I don't care what they do to me or to our generation. But I won't let my children be living under their regime. This is not the actually free and fair what they have been doing. This is totally illegal. It is a treason what they have done now. We want democracy, so respect our vote. History will remind us who is standing up with us this time. Jia Win is the founder and executive director of Burma Human Rights Network, through which he leads several teams inside of Myanmar that are documenting human rights violations. He was born and raised in Rangoon, Burma, and is currently a UK-based human rights activist. Jia Win, thank you for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. So the military deposed Aung San Suu Kyi and took control, alleging that there was fraud in the November 2020 election, in which Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, won a landslide majority. Is there any truth to the military's allegation of election fraud? Actually, you see, this is uh, very clear. It's a false accusation and all is fabricated. The point here is, if the election is fraud, there is a code to go through the legal process, right? And uh, we can rely on the judge and judiciary system to collect the evidence. They have to prove the evidence. It sounds like what happened in the U.S., but the difference is here, the military coup the power. Now they are going to force the people to give the false witness, and they are going to create the law, that the case, because they have the power authority to force the people to blackmail the people. This is not the actually free and fair what they have been doing. This is totally illegal. It is a treason what they have done now. Mm-hmm. And 
how is the military so powerful to have declared this coup? What really gives them any sort of authority to take this action, especially since the NLD had been in power since 2015? I need to go back to the Constitution because 2008 Constitution, which is drafted by the military to make sure they control the power. The international community is saying that this 2008 Constitution will bring democracy in Burma. But the thing here is that this 2008 constitution makes sure that military control the power, military is above the law, and even our parliament cannot do anything without the approval of the military. So all the control is under the military hand. There is no way any civilian government can reform that system. So from the day one, we've been telling that this is not going to work. But the international community have invested billions of money and a lot of times in this in, in this process. But at the end, we were back to square one. So I want to talk about how the military got to this point. Since the military's claim of election fraud is baseless, as we discussed, what is their actual underlying motive to seize control now? So this is not because of the military. This is for the general mainline, for his personal interest. Because his term already finished since two, three years. And the president has to extend his term every year. So according to the military rule, he has to resign now. But if he resigns, he has a very a very dangerous accusation on his head, committing genocide in Rakhine state on the Rohingya people. So with this accusation, if he retired, if he doesn't hold any power to protect himself his interest, he will be brought by any uh, civilian government or maybe any general to the Hague then he will be finished, you know, his family money and immense wealth will, will you know, will, will no use for them. So that is, that is why he wants to protect himself and protect his wealth. He has to commit this coup. Otherwise, there is no necessity for the military to coup the power while as long as 2008 constitution exists. And I want to now turn to how the international community should respond to this coup. We know that several world leaders were quick to condemn the military's actions, but what else should the international community do to help spur reform? So previous sanctions were not effective because they are not targeting the economic interests of the military. When you target their deep pocket, then this will affect to them. This is a very important thing the international community need to consider to impose targeted sanctions on the economic interests of the like military-owned companies and businesses and their cronies. Yeah, and we know that the EU is considering sanctions and the U.S. put in place sanctions, as you said, that were targeted. They were targeted against members of the military and businesses that support military interests. So do you think those sanctions are powerful enough to pressure the military to reverse course? The way the sanction work, it is not suddenly come up to the 100%. It will gradually grow. But the first step is to target economic sanction to the economic interests of the military, like businesses, companies, and, and cronies. And their overseas account in Singapore, especially, in international community need to ask Singapore to seize their wealth, like four, five, six billion dollars has been saved by the military, those stolen from the country, and they have saved in, in Singaporean bank. And the Vietnam and, and other Asian countries, they have investment, their wealth. This need to be seized immediately. And then no one should consider this illegitimate the military that overthrow a democratically elected government. No one should give them a credibility as a recognized government. 
And you're just talking about how Asian countries can really put pressure. Do you think that countries such as China and countries in Southeast Asia can play a greater role than some of these Western countries because they might have more influence over the military generals? Yes, I mean, they have uh, a lot of influence. And, and what I see in ASEAN countries like Indonesia, and the problem here is, you know, most of the time, uh, the diplomatic circle, they are siding with the military and they see that this is the authority that we have to work with them. And they fail to stand up with the people of Burma. For example, Indonesia military has a very good relation with Burmese military and Vietnam military, like uh, Singaporean uh, banks, businesses have a lot of investment and they have uh, so many properties bought by the generals in, in Singapore in very expensive places. So this is very important concern. International community should not communicate those illegitimate groups. Stand up with the, with the people of Burma, where people of Burma has risked their life. You know, they know where they are going to end it up. They could be killed. They could be, you know, tortured on the street. But yet they come out to the street, uh, you know, with great determination. This must be respected. This should be recognized by international community. And importantly, we should not be betrayed by communicating backdoor to this military and recognizing their authority. So what can be done to push these countries, such as Indonesia and Singapore that you're noting, which do kind of have allegiances to these military interests? So that is the way international community need to come together to to help Burma because as a public, as a people, they have no authority, they have no power. Only when they form a government, uh, when they have their government is recognized, then they can go against that. But right now, those properties need to be seized, those by those countries. This is a matter of uh, credibility of those countries. You know how these countries have react when their neighbor country is struggling with the illegitimate military coup. And the people are, you know, risking their life. Where they are going to stand? History will remind us who is standing up with us this time. Mm -hmm. And so in discussing the protests, we know hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets in these past weeks protesting against the military. So what are the demands of these protesters? There are key four demands. To abolish 2008 constitution, to end military rule forever from Burma, form a democratic federal state which guarantee the equality for every minorities and the fourth is to release all the politicians who have been arrested illegally. These four demands. So this 2008 constitution, we obviously know that the military has concerted their power within it by reserving 25% of seats in parliament. So how is it even possible to abolish that? I mean, there's no process, right, for a constitutional amendment if you need 76% of the vote, but the military will always hold 25%. Okay, There's, you need to see the strategy here. There are two major groups which is working now. One is people who are come out to the street with the student, young generations and, and activists. They call General Strike Committee. This committee has demand this for. And on the other hand, there is another group which called CRPH. Committee of Representative Piduloto, uh, right? This is a uh, parliamentarians, those who've been, you know, win the election during the election in 2020. So they have formed a parliamentarian and they are very soon going to form a government. So they are the one who are going to abolish 2008 constitution and they are the one who are going to abolish all these uh, undemocratic rules and system. So once they get to the power and these are people who are struggling on the street, they are demanding the power for them. Once they are into the power, once they have been recognized by the international community, 
they are the one legitimate and international community have to support this and i think that this is a group who may make sure that they have a new constitution or abolish the 2000 constitution or maybe they they amend the constitution so they will consider what is the best way to do to make sure the burma come back to the democratic reforms and say the military were to back down and the nld regain control what would this mean for the future of the democratic project in myanmar is there any assurance that democracy would sustain or would citizens still be fearful that the military could unjustly seize control again in the future in order to guarantee for the military not to involve in the politics we need a institutional reforms of this military institution and that can only be happen uh, when all ethnic arms group join together form a state that guarantee all the equal rights and and the military will be automatically contained in that once international community support them so we have uh, politicians and arms group and the activists and public that they are more powerful than the military but only to make sure these come together need uh, external power to bring them into one table and and make them happen and we know that this coup is also playing out amid the ongoing rohingya crisis the rohingya were already facing great uncertainty before this coup and violent persecution at the hands of the military so does the military control now exacerbate the situation for the rohingya people for the rohingya people they are under the high risk for always the power who could the power today are the one who give order to to conduct the clearance operation and the conduct the genocide against the rohingya people so they are under the very immediate threat the military is saying that they will bring back the rohingya but what they have done right now they appointed some uh, ministers and the key people in the key position those who have their background is very very um, controversial like they have been promoting and and advocating anti muslim hatred in in the in the country so these are the people who are going to take position in and how could they are going to conduct bringing back this rohingya people they are the one who hate them so it's like uh, you know you, you you have been appointed a, a fox to herd the sheep it is impossible mm-hmm. and what do you think can be done to support them i mean people are obviously thinking about how to bring back democracy but you also need to think about this particular minority group which has faced severe consequences yeah in order to make democratic reform in burma we need to clear the way of the military this military need to be contained this can only happen when international community stand up and all the ethnic minorities and 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 people in burma come together and united and they have supported by the international community then this is going to be a major revolution and to bring down this the power of the military we replace this military with the ethnic arms group and, and ethnic politicians and, um, that kind of leadership that kind of government will guarantee that not only the democracy in burma also federal state and equality for the minority state and everyone will be behind this government but in current situation what military is doing they are trying to buying those minorities and giving them false hope some of them fall into it some of them are not fall into it so on the other hand there isn't any government to unify them yet so we are asking the crph to come up together immediately but unfortunately what happen is they are also inside burma and they have to hide as well and while they are operating they also hiding so it is not easy for them to immediately to respond everything in the in, in a short term so they need a little bit time but in the meantime 
the international community need to put a heavy pressure on the military not to react, not to arrest, or not to kill any people on the street. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it would take to unite these various ethnic minority groups? Granting them their rights. They are fighting for the federal state. So granting them the federal state. This is what the military has a lot of problem with this. You know, the military doesn't want them to give the federal state because these states have rich with resources and they want to exploit it. And they are not exploiting for the country. They are exploiting for their family. But the problem with the military is they have a very dirty intention and, and their plan is, you know, to keep them into that poverty, to let them to struggle, to weaken them so they cannot revolt against them. So once the international community or any government guaranteeing their federal states and, and their equal rights and the development, they will definitely stand up with the unity and, and they, they will join that post. And we know that Aung San Suu Kyi and her pro-democracy party the NLD, have historically failed to condemn the military's persecution of the Rohingya or acknowledge the atrocities. So how should that factor into the international community's response? NLD government is also not without sin life. They have also committed so many problems. But right now, problem is the military. But in order to make sure that NLD is also abide by the law, that NLD government is not fall into the under the pressure of the military. Most of the problem NLD has is because of the, under the pressure of the military. And they need to be guaranteed that they will not have any pressure from the military. That means we need a new constitution or this constitution need, uh, need to be amended. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the NLD would support the Rohingya people if they were not facing this pressure from the military? I mean, for that point, is not anyone, no anyone can guarantee unless the NLD party themselves. But what we are standing up here is human rights, right? So the people on the street, you can see that the many people come out with the banners that we were wrong, we were we regret that we we couldn't we didn't stand up for the Rohingya people. So there are many people and start feeling that yes, we have been misled by the our politicians and and the military and leaders. Actually, this Rohingya has uh, you know rights and their rights has been you know uh, exploited. So that's how the people are now start feeling, and this is a very good sign. And as we look forward, can you talk to us about the vision Burmese people have for their country in the future? And what kinds of values you think the people need to develop to actualize that future? I mean, people of Burma has clearly proved their aspiration and their determination by coming out to the street, risking their lives and confronting with the ruthless army. And even you see, they have been killed by the snipers from the in Mandalay and other cities. Yet still, you can see the millions of people on the street now. This is because they want, they are craving for human rights and equality and, and, and freedom in Burma. And they won't, they don't want to see military rule anymore, any, uh, you know, for, for, for the future. So that is uh, only democratically elected government can guarantee them and, and the international support and standing up with them. You know, that is the only uh, things will protect the democracy in Burma. The main point here is the aim of the people is very clearly you can see that they are fed up. They are they want democracy in Burma. They want equality and human rights in Burma. And their aspiration is a very strong. And this uprising has clearly proved this. Yeah, the people are certainly resilient. And let's hope that their aspirations do prevail. Bajawin, thank you so much for joining us today and for your time. Uh, thank you very much.
Now, to further explore the conversations and demands on the ground in Myanmar, I'm going to bring in Oxford Policy Pod correspondent, Laura Katcha, who's joined by Oxford MPP's own Burma graduate scholar, Nian San Muin. Nian has worked as a liaison manager for a nonprofit implementing humanitarian supports to the internally displaced people in camps in Rakhine and Kachin states in Burma. She's been trained as a political scientist and is passionate about transitional justice and reconciliation in Burma. Hi, Nian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for having me here. Maybe we could start off um, with you sharing uh, a bit of your understanding of the current state of the protests. For example, who is protesting? How are they spread around the country? And what is their momentum at the moment? There has been a lot going on. About the protests, there have been, it is happening locally and then also internationally. The protests happening internationally, we were talking about in the cities like Melbourne and some cities in the U.S. where there are most Burmese diaspora. And it's not only about these countries, also in Thailand, Malaysia, and this, and all around the world because Burmese diaspora is really big and very separated. About the local protests, there has been general strikes going where people are going on the streets. It is happening not only in the big cities like Yango, Mandalay, and Nebido, but it is also in very remote areas such as where I am from, uh, Hakka State, to as well as very relatively peaceful tourist areas, which such as uh, Bagan. So it is really fascinating to see that the protests are going nationwide. Also about the civil disobedience movement, there have been hospitals, universities, and especially the train and transportation services across the country, which are observing this movement. They are wholeheartedly involving in this. They are also the pioneers of the civil disobedience movement itself. And there are also some forms of participation by the banks and then some other government agencies. But then it is also, I saw that there have been some challenges for every important government agencies to join in this movement because mostly people are paid on relatively very low paid on daily basis. And then the, the survival of the families have to depend on the whether they go to the office each day or not. And then also because of the pressure from above if they are observing the civil disobedience movement. And then there are also some other street artworks and posters on the buildings, on the streets, such as uh, We Want Democracy. And then also the meme culture, which is really important in this age. At last, we will we can talk about the campaigns internationally, about cutting doing businesses with the military. Many sources are saying that there are the military is involved in so many businesses, so it's been a really hard process, but I am very glad to see that there are campaigns like this going on. So could you now tell us a bit more about what these protesters are demanding? Uh, we've, he- we've heard the highlights from international media um, about uh, wanting to stop the coup, uh, wanting them to respect the vote, um, but can you give us a bit more detail on this and what these demands mean to the people on the ground? And maybe whether they've also changed throughout the process or in response to military actions. So in the protest, people are mainly talking about three things uniformly. The first is to release the people who have been detained, both since the day of since the first day of the coup, and then the people who have been arbitrarily arrested. And then the other thing is to reject the military coup, which also leads to the third point, which we are saying we want democracy, so respect our vote. And then a slightly more controversial voices include the federalism, 
and then the abolishment of the 2008 constitution. They have been undoubtedly controversial since before the coup, since long before the coup, because some ethnic groups, most ethnic groups are demanding the federalism. And then the, they think the 2008 constitution, the amendment process is not working. So we should just abolish it and then uh, restart writing a new one. Can you give us uh, your understanding as well of the key barriers that these protesters are facing and how they're responding to these barriers? The people don't have the weapons and this is going to be the main difference. But if we just take out the weapons, uh, an equal possession of weapons in the equation, we can just we can generalize that there's a social media or internet blackout, which is really interrupting the communication within the civilians for uh, for their movements and the protests. They We have this uh, 12 a.m. to 9 a.m. internet cut out every day. As it is especially blocking Facebook and Twitter. The military also hijacked the telecommunication companies like Telenor, which is based in Norway, and Oridu, and these kind of very widely used telecommunication companies. They also are facing the curfew. The second thing is propaganda going on. They are basically saying there is no such thing as protests going on in the country. The country is peaceful. And then they were also saying that the military is taking very well care of the country, and then that uh, the civilians need not be worried about anything going on. And on top of these things, the real violences are also found on the ground. One of them is the military violence and then the police brutality to the peaceful protesters, where the law enforcement officers, instead of protecting the civilians, beat the civilians and then shoot young people in the head. I think two young people have already died in the protest, but there are also many other undocumented deaths. There are some cases of poisoning the drinking water in some outskirt areas of Yangon in other areas where people have to mainly share the waters. I can't believe that the military is is taking such extreme measures as poisoning the water in certain areas of Yangon. I guess that brings me on to my next question slightly, which is um, just to get a bit of perspective on how these protests um, fit into past protests that uh, the country has faced in response to the military. What is different now? You mentioned something about the younger generation having more access to technology. Is that changing the way that people are are negotiating these protests or are there other differences now? If we start talking about the big event of democracy uprisings in the 1988 and then the 2007, I think the biggest difference is, is technology. So the younger generations, just like we mentioned before, they have better advantage of the technology and they can help better detect the disinformation, report more quickly of the fake news, especially on Facebook, and then circulate the information within each other more effectively. And I think the civil disobedience movement is also the newest thing in this protest. This is the first time we observe this. We don't even know if this is going right, but almost everyone is very well determined to do this, which I find it really inspiring and also deeply problematic. So I also have I, I have friends who are personally opening up to me saying that I don't care what they do to me or to our generation, but I won't let my children be living under their regime. That's so powerful. That kind of brings me on to my next question, which is what hope do you see for these protesters and what would reconciliation with the military look like? I think it is the time of breakaway. 
where there's no more possibility of a middle ground to reconcile with the fa- with the military. So I really hope to see the power return to the people, but I personally don't think there's any ground for negotiation or reconciliation with the military. It is just either the military wins or the people win. And in this case, of course, I really hope that the people win. Wow, thank you so much. There's so much for us to take away here. Thank you for giving us your time and your insights. And I can assure you that there's going to be a lot more interested listeners going away and and reading things more actively and engaging more actively from now. So thank you so much for all of your time, Yan. Well, that's it for this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. We appreciate you joining us as we explore the rapidly unfolding situation in Myanmar. There will be many new developments in the coming weeks, so be sure to keep up with the news to follow along. If you like this episode, subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter at OxfordPolicyPod. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne Ryan Hume, and this episode was researched and produced by Laura Katcha and Yan San Nguyen and edited by Alicia Aslan and myself. We'll see you back next week for a special episode on International Women's Day. 